You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. This is episode number 88, and I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, coming to you in mono sound because people do not like it when we record in stereo. (laughs) With me today are my regular panelists, freelance writer Rob Zachney. Hello, everyone. Freelance writer uh, and gamers with jobs, Maven, Julia Murdoch. I like being a Maven. I think I'm going to put that on my business card. There you go. Returning uh, for a long hiatus, happily, glad to have him, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Yeah, hello gamers! <laughs> <laughs> so is that Scottish or some butchered Danish-German thing, or what? Uh, it sounded know. Eastern European to me, but... Yeah, that's perfect. Just where I needed. <laughs> so how you been, Bruce? Oh, fantastic. I, uh, I'm doing great. I have, I have slept today, although not for very long, so just bear with me here. And with us today is a special guest, uh, someone whose work I've read and admired for a long time, uh, the host of the Brainy Gamer podcast and the writer at BrainyGamer.com, Mr. Michael Abbott. Michael, glad you could be here. Oh, thanks for having me on. This is great. Well, we'll see how great it is. Uh, (laughs) Ask me again at the end. I'll... I'll... (laughs) We'll ask you again, and we'll edit it to the back, so you can say, this is going to suck, and see how (laughs) smart you are. Uh, Why all this brain power in one room? Because I think it's time to do a topic that is guaranteed to get us angry mail. Uh, It's a topic that's guaranteed to piss some people off, but it's a topic I've been wanting to do for some time, and was inspired partly by a form spring question I was asked uh, three months ago. uh, Oh, that's timely. Yeah, well... (laughs) It's, it takes time to get this stuff done. We have all these more important things to do. We have more important games coming up. But there are no good strategy games coming up you now in Christmas, so now we can do this. Uh, and the question from the listener or reader was, is there something inherently tasteless about war games? It's a very uh, loaded question. Uh, I'm assuming the reader seemed to think there might have been. Um, and it's a question that I've wrestled with myself a little bit as I see how war games model conflict and we see how war has changed, especially as we move into the era of total war. So the topic I want to raise is what are the ethics of war games and war gamers? Are there some things we cannot touch in war games? Do we want to model them? Are there some holes in the way war games reflect the world or are we still stuck in this Kriegspiel mentality where it's okay uh, to play at war? So who wants to jump in here first? Because I really don't know what I think about this question or this issue. As much time as I've devoted to it, I really don't even know where to begin with it. I'll jump in because I asked my daughter, who's 10, uh, her answer to this question right before the show because I was putting her to bed. And she asked what I was going to do. And I said I was going to go talk about this topic. And she said, well, that's really easy. We all want to be the hero of our own story. And if there's no bad guys to kill, there's no hero. Which is an interesting angle, but I'm not sure I'm happy with that answer. But I think there is something to that, which which really gets down to, to some extent, all games, strategy games included, are role-playing games in the sense that we are actors on the environment in which we're playing. And we want to be heroes. And there's something about the human condition that requires that conflict to be meaningful and requires it to have that level of depth for it to be satisfying as a story, to feel like we are heroes of our own story. So I'll put that out as the straw man to get us started. Well, I'm kind of nervous about having a whole podcast devoted to to arguing with Julian's 10-year-old daughter. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I figured you'd be well matched there, Bruce. Yeah, well, it sets us up for uh, for a whole lot of hijinks. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Michael was about to say something, and I cut him off of that. So, no, I was just going to say I put my daughter to bed too, but you know, she just asked for her teddy bear. That was pretty much the extent of it. Uh, she's three, so you know, she doesn't understand these things. But <laughs> actually, she does understand. She's starting to understand what heroes are. I mean, she's starting to understand what that is. Um, I, I just think I think there's another way of pitching the question, which, or maybe it's just another angle, but it's mm-hmm. it's the question you come back to with games a lot in in various genres, and it's it, are games able to deal with complexity? I mean, can, can games address complexity? And if they can, then the concept of war in games, conflict in games, you know, people fighting uh, to the death over what are typically ideas uh can can be interesting you know that it's something you can explore and something that's worth looking at but you know i i don't think we can necessarily answer the question about whether or not games can handle complexity at that level so it's really it's not to me it's not a question of can games or should we play play at war in games uh i mean i think that it's it it creates all kinds of interesting possibilities if you can add a, a, a complex dimension to the to the gameplay, to the experience. All right, First, I want to. Uh, yeah, I want to make sure that we define something before we get too far off on this. When, when we're talking about war games, what are we talking about? Are we talking about like? And this is the the problem that we have now, where everybody everything is a war game, right? If there's mm-hmm. war in it, it's a war game. Are we talking about war games like? Call of Honor or whatever. <laughs> Call of Duty, <laughs> Medal yes, of Honor, that game, whatever. Medal of I think I think we're I are. think this Medal is a strategy duty. game podcast. So I was thinking of yeah, uh, like everything like from Command and Conquer and, and all that right. kind of stuff. No, right. I'm talking. I, I okay. I wouldn't even call. I don't even consider Command and Conquer. Man, are we we're talking about like games with chits in them, where like you're you're moving first SS Panzer Division. Is there is it okay to should there be any ethical are there any ethical questions to deal with from simulating the invasion of Poland? Well, of course yeah, there is. Troy, you don't play the Nazis in games, right? You don't play the German side. I generally, unless I'm reviewing a game, I generally do not like playing the Nazis. No. Okay, and I find that weird. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, I mean, why, why do you not? Why don't you play the German side? Why don't I play the German side? Um, a part of it is because, I guess, going back to the adorable little Murdoch child, I like being a hero, uh, and you know, Nazis aren't very good heroes. Um, part of it is I. Go to the complexity thing is you know I can't get over in many ways uh, how poorly many games model the complexity and the villainy of uh, German advances. If I'm reviewing a game, of course you have to play the Nazis. If you're reviewing a war game, you have to show okay how does it model the invasion of France. You just can't review a game unless you get that right. Um, so you have to try that out. But for fun, I'd rather not have to deal with the question of well, am I just I'm going to move the this Waffen SS division into Estonia and just leave it there for a while and not ask questions what those guys are doing. And see, so, I'm not doing I, anything because there's no rule for that. There's yeah. no rule for pogroms, so I don't understand what your problem is. But I say I say both those objections. I think sort of touch on things that make me a little uneasy about this aspect of my hobby. And one is that often we're given wars with no context, and you you can have great models of the campaign, but 
most war games, as I think Bruce and I would mean them, they aren't really interested in what's going on beyond the confines of that battlefield. In a lot of cases, they can't be. But I do think there's. I do think war games have the power to sort of distort your view on history. It's it becomes an issue of what's your what's your broader intellectual diet, and I think you know being a military history buff, I think can sort of I don't know cause you to lose sight or not appreciate other important aspects of these stories, and eventually you end up sort of just viewing wars as like an intellectual exercise, a contest when I, I think, you really need to I keep think- that. I think you can look at the Civil War and its popularity for years as the sort of default uh, battlefield on which people wanted to play, uh, although I think that's been clearly supplanted in the last 20 years by World War II, maybe in the last 25 years by World War II. But, but I think the more distance you get from a conflict, the easier it is to reduce it to strategic components and both dehumanize the conflict and depoliticize the conflict, right? I mean, I, there are not a lot of there are not a lot of uh, strategy games that are modeling sort of individual tactical battles in Vietnam at the moment. There are some. I'm not saying that that's not done at all. But compared to the level of uh, minutia that have been examined on, you know, <laughs> Pickett's Charge or, you know, any number of, you know, 20 or 30 uh, key conflicts in World War II, you know, those have now been deconstructed like like complex food down to their bare elements, right? Where there's not only no context for the war at large, there's often no context for the battle. Yeah, I agree, and and I'm not sure that I'm not sure what context you want. I mean, th- this whole thing I think is kind of this getting into the idea of complexity of war games and and you know uh, games being able to handle complexity. I mean, I don't think that that's what really the purpose is being served. And uh, but I totally agree with you with the whole idea that the further you get away from a from a conflict, the more uh, the more it sort of becomes depersonalized. I I remember when I was reviewing. Um, uh, one of John Tiller's games. It was a Vietnam uh, squad level game, and um, he had uh, um, he had individual uh, units, but he refused to use historical names out of uh, out of respect for the families, um, which is something that really is only a consideration while those families are you know around, right? I mean, if you have uh, nobody has a problem, uh, uh, you know, having a counter with Marshal Ney on it. So, um, you know, uh, 200 years later, those that won't be the same consideration. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you there, Julian. Don't you think, though, that there's a level of ex- abstraction in a strategy game that makes things a little more comfortable? That you're not looking at people's faces, you're not looking at human forms necessarily, like you do in a Call of Duty or a Medal of Honor? That I'm, when, I'm, when, I, when I see these Taliban forces coming down the side of a mountain and I'm, they're in my crosshairs, and I'm, you know, in a mission. It, it, it is just a significantly different experience for me than sort of looking down on a battlefield. The distance, the distancing, and the abstraction. Yeah, pushing cardboard chits around, right? See, I, I am actually more comfortable with the abstraction. I, I feel that. I mean, my problem with a lot of, you know, war shooters, at least, is that. I mean, they're action movies. They're they're action movies that are taking as their setting real-life events and wars that are currently ongoing and often sort of sensationalizing them. And they they carry, I think, they try to carry at least like a whiff of authenticity. But it's just enough, I think, to make the phoniness all the more repugnant. Hmm. Um, whereas I prefer like, 
you know, I, I think like simulation at the operational level of like the invasion of Russia or something like a Barbarossa game. You know, I, I don't know. I, that just seems that just seems more more straightforward to me. But what do you mean straightforward? I mean, I, I thought I think everybody agrees that that the that the the abstraction makes things more comfortable. So I'm not sure what your what your point is. I guess I guess my point is. The game, the, I, I think the game is fundamental. I think games like that in general are fundamentally trying to be honest about some some aspect of the war. They're 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 trying to model. Well, here's what operational combat was like on the Eastern Front in 1941, um, and here are the here are the sort of things you have to consider. But it, I I don't think the same level of I don't think the same level of honesty is there in in, in a military shooter, and I I don't. That's what that's why those games bother me a little more. Is there really honesty though in a war game if you know their cities are no more than a place you can stick a unit and there's a terrain damage and there's not civilian casualties and strategic bombing is just hurting an industrial plant? Is there is that really honesty? And and is there? I mean, I think a bigger bigger question is: Is there some sort of obligation by the creator of these games to provide that honesty? I mean, right. there's a very big difference between uh, playing Civilization Five and deciding to go nuclear and playing DEFCON, right? Because both they, they've been deliberately designed as different experiences. It's kind of goofy fun in Civ Five when you drop the nuke for the first time. Uh, there's nothing fun about it in DEFCON. It's designed to make you uncomfortable. Oh, I don't know. It, it. It, DEFCON's it, it, not a fun it, game. It, I totally disagree with you. I completely... No, no, it is fun, but it is designed to provide an atmosphere that's contemplative as versus, I mean, I mean, it's not, it's not like they're playing circus music when the bombs drop in Civ five either. But, but my point is that the same action, right? Nuking a city in those two games have very different feels to them. And I think create can create very different emotional responses. Yeah. yeah there's a, there's a certain, there, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that's because in Defcon they're playing Brian Eno. I mean, I, I don't really think, <laughs> I mean, I think this is, I mean, it's just way too over-intellectualized. I mean, I don't really... I mean, yeah, fine. I, I, I nuke uh, uh, Moscow. I mean, it doesn't... It's... it's, uh, it, it's Look, here's the bottom line. Is it weird to, to sit around and push chits around on a on a board with hexagons on it? Yes, completely. I mean, end of story. I mean, there's, there's no... I mean, that's... that's there's. I don't think there's any question about that. I think... I mean, I think it would be interesting to, to kind of talk about the... Um, the fact that a lot of, I mean, there's there's a significant fetishism element to wargaming that you see yeah. anytime you go to one of these conventions and you see the people wearing the, you know, whatever, SS Dasreich Panzer Division Tour of yes. France t-shirts, right? Yes. I mean, it's yes. completely inappropriate. It's, it's, and yes. it's bizarro. But, I mean... Well, Okay, go ahead. No, just I wanted to interject there. One, that's one of the things that sort of brought this topic to mind um, was that there's that there's that guy running for office in Ohio. Um, photos surfaced of him wearing the uniform of the Fifth SS Panzer Division, um, and turns out he's he's an SS reenactor, and people thought that was a little weird. And his defense of it, in part, was, "Oh no, he's he's not a Nazi," but he's, he he goes on to say, "Well, I've always been fascinated by the fact that here was a relatively small country that from a strictly military point of view, accomplished incredible things. I mean, they took over most of Europe and Russia, and it really took the combined effort of the free world to defeat them. From a purely historical military point of view, that's incredible. And that's the kind of fetishism that makes me feel a little icky. Yeah, <laughs> I should. But don't you think there's, I, I, it's, there's something to be said for authorial intent? 
that that a game like DEFCON yes. it does yes. in fact have embedded in it a certain kind of point of view, an authorial voice, and it's a provocation, really, if you want to think about it like that. It's the game is intended to provoke, and uh, not uh, other games are obviously designed to sort of more stay out of your way and just let you make all the choices. But you know, not every game has to be that way. And if you if if there is an authorial voice in there trying to provoke, then the the possibility of you know. Julian called it contemplative gaming, that, that there's a chance that you might actually provoke something worth thinking about and that my experience and your experience and how that provocation worked, you know, in our two cases might differ and we might talk about that. I really want to, I really want to reject the whole idea of authorial intent, but I don't want to get into a, into a literary criticism argument because I, I, I don't really accept that as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, I, I don't. I really think authorial intent is was really way overrated as as a as a as a philosophical sort of. Meme, well, I think so. it's, it's problematic in strategy gaming, certainly. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not there, arguing there, for. But against. there's an intentionality of design. Yeah, exactly. we, we we don't need to get we. I, I I happen to be from a literary criticism person, uh, someone who believes that authorial intent isn't actually important. However, there's no question that you can look at a game. I mean, you can look at a game like. Uh, I mean, just pick, keep these two examples, Civ Five and, and DEFCON. Different artistic choices were made in presenting those games that were not accidental. Now, Bruce, you may disregard them entirely and not care about the choice of music or the choice of art style. No, I care about the choice of music. It's I, I enjoy it. But 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 I, I think it's it is in my case, those games affect me emotionally differently. And I don't mean like I'm sitting here sobbing under my desk. Oh, I'm just come on, you that, are. You know well, you are. <laughs> you know I'm a pretty emo guy, but but my experience of those games is different, and I do believe I I think that it does have to do with this. Are we, uh, you know, are we sort of walking a particular path or not? Okay, I mean I I, I agree with you to that extent, but I mean I, I think that I mean look, it, this whole argument it, if if you sat down and showed somebody a box with you know the Africa core on it. And then you opened it up and you showed them that there's this big map and they have these little counters and you put them on things and you take Tobruk. They would be like, God, you're kind of a weirdo. Right. And it's, it's, I agree with that. I'm not trying to defend normalcy here. <laughs> okay. Well then, I mean, then, I mean, but that's part, that's part of this whole thing, right? Because the whole part of the whole argument about the ethics of wargaming is sort of the perception of wargaming. I mean, there's when uh, when I got one of my first Avalon Hill games, uh, I remember opening the the box and there was a there was a catalog inside, and it had all these testimonials from you know people like whatever Henry Kissinger or somebody that you know C Wade McCluskey and et cetera et cetera et cetera, and uh, one of the lines in it was you know war gamers are not warmongers so even in like you know 1962 or whenever Avalon Hill started having little catalogs they it's felt true. it necessary to to sort of you know preemptively. Uh, uh, sort of try to uh, ward off these you know, criticisms of war gaming. All right, but then, but then you you brought up that fetishism, and I, and I do think that's a part of it. Now, does that does that flow from the hobby at all? Yeah, I mean, the whole point of the I mean, the whole point of war gaming, at least for me and from what I've understood of people, is the way that people react to war gaming is that people who are war gamers are people who are interested in history, and they uh, they read about history or they see a show about history or something, some historical event interests them and they feel a need to interact with it in a more 
I just I'm going to repeat myself in a more interactive fashion than than anybody else. And they want to move little counters around, or they want to well, you know simulate Mesopotamia or something. But they want I, to I do it in a, a physical that, way. That's a that's a thin slice of it. I think to say that the driving force behind strategy gamers is this desire to get closer to history. There's definitely a group of players for whom that's the case. But there's I'm also it's also the case gamers. that. Right, but, but I'm not I talking think about strategy that, gamers. Strategy, but, I'm not talking about strategy gamers. Wargaming. Wargames are, to get you to a certain level, you know, of, of a, down to that detail, you're really talking about people who are really interested in the history. Well, but, but I, 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 I kind of disagree with that. I mean, I consider myself a pretty hardcore wargamer. I mean, I have an entire shelf of advanced squad leader crap in the basement. Right? I mean, I've, I've been down that path. Uh-huh. But it, it's always been, for me, much more because these were really interesting conflicts to simulate, right? From the, the actual situations were complex and interesting. Not that I was them? really not that I was really interested in this one particular made up battle from this one particular scenario that some guy wrote for ASL. Right, but that's what I'm saying. You, why simulate them? Why would you? Why would you even get a box with a bunch of cardboard in it and and move it around and turn the little corners and roll dice? I mean, once you start doing that, there, you clearly have a need, some kind of psychological need to 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 push little simulation counters around. And right, but I'm, saying, I'm just saying that I'm just saying that the fact that that conflict happens to have been a real one mm-hmm. uh, is in is in many cases incidental, right? I mean, I don't have any great huge uh passion for the civil war but i've played hundreds of hours of civil war war games because it's an interesting conflict with an interesting balance of powers right so I'd obviously you have some in the civil war uh, so obviously you have some interest in the civil war but it's a, it's a shame that it's incidental isn't it i mean I, maybe that some gamers do yeah. want it to be incidental they don't want to think about it but in, in a certain way of thinking about it it's a shame that 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 it's so incidental I, I actually things that agree. These are I, I actually I think it's more interesting when a game makes it not incidental, when the context of the conflict is part of the game. I find that more interesting. But you're either the exception or proves the rule or just a complete weirdo because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because from, from my experience of the wargaming community, in quotes, thank you, uh, that's just how people – That's how, when people talk about wargaming, that's kind of what gets them together, right? They start talking about – there was a uh, – what was – what was uh, oh I was reading a book about um, about the desert war and there was the uh, that arch that uh, that Mussolini built in the Libyan desert the Arco dei Fellaini and they were they had some pictures of uh, tanks driving through it because uh, that's where the uh, uh, Africa Corps uh, had to had to pass through that on the way to Cyrenaica and I thought huh I wonder if that arch is still there. So I get on Google and I start Googling it. And of course, what's the first thing I find? Like worldwar2talk.com. And some guy is going, hey, you know, I was reading this book about Rommel and there's this arch. And I was wondering if that arch was still there. <laughs> and then sure enough, I looked it up and, you know, actually, you know, Gaddafi blew it up in 1970. But here's some pictures of tanks driving through this arch. <laughs> <laughs> But Bruce, let me let me let me toss this back at you a little bit, right? So you and I both obviously love war games, have played lots of war games, right? That's that's something we dig. And okay. and for whatever reason. But I also know that you love strategy games that aren't necessarily set in some conflict that we know about, mm-hmm. whether it's Dominions or whether Correct. it's you yes. know Dominions you know, is a simulation, so you can't use that. Right, but <laughs> 
but, but my point is, so so you know, here here we have you know, I'm not just a war gamer. You are not just a war gamer, but we do love these kinds of complex strategy games. Some of which are based right. on real conflicts, and some of which right. are based on imaginary conflicts. Right, yes. but, can, but can you but can you imagine a war game, a detailed war game based on Lord of the Rings, or based on yes, uh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, there are. There was actually there was an Avalon Hill box chit war game of the Lord of the Rings that I played the crap out of. That yes. was actually S- that was SPI War of the Rings. Oh, was it an SPI game? Okay. Yeah, I got it. It's right, actually there'll, be a, there'll there. be a link to all of these at the bottom. <laughs> of the bottom. I had no idea. But but I, I sort of want to turn this back to Michael a little bit. I mean, do you feel like there's that difference between fantasy and reality that really makes a difference here, or or is fantasy just another way of uh, you know expressing the same kinds of issues? Well, I, this probably is where the part where Troy wonders why he asked me on the show. But I, I'm not a I'm not a war gamer. I don't play these games. Uh, I've played them in the past. I mean, so I know what they are, and I've I've observed people playing them. But I, I the, the disconnect is troubling to me, and it's never I've never been able to get past it. I I it's Which not. Which disconnect? Pardon me. Which, Which disconnect? disconnect? The disconnect uh, between the the fact that this this feels like real stuff to me that actually happened that it's based on historical things and I'm just kind of above it all just simulating things and there's no there's no it, there's a, no apparent ethical dimension to it, right? I'm just there, playing out scenarios and seeing what if I did this or what if I use my resources this way or what if I tried this strategy. It's interesting intellectually. But I think that the, the the disconnect between the fact that these are you know these are bloody wars where people died for me personally it's just that that I, I have trouble navigating that. What so about the, for me? What about I, the, I would much rather play a really lousy first person shooter. I mean, I would rather play a, a game that I hate, which like Medal of Honor, uh, because even when they f- sort of try to force me into the point of view of this kind of dreamy, deified American soldier, I can question that as I'm playing it, and I can question the experience, and I can interrogate the whole thing in ways that seem to me much more um, engaging, much more compelling to me. But that, you know, that's just me. I don't understand what that means. I don't understand what you mean, interrogate. I don't understand what that means. You're just more comfortable with with denying the reality of being a soldier? I'm going to... No, what he's saying is... He's, he's an academic, you can tell. That when he's playing the role of a character, he can, and, and being told the story of the character, he can, going back to the authorial intent, he can question the character's motives. He can question how the story is being told. He you're can interrogate what the, the meaning is. You're still shooting people in the head. It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me. No, there's, there are moments in that game, for example, and by the way, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to be put in the position of defending Medal of Honor because I think it's, it's, it's a nightmare. But, but, so I'm looking through this night vision, you know, goggle thing, and and mm-hmm. watching these Taliban soldiers pull these mm-hmm. uh, launchers out of caves, and I and 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 I know what the mission is, and I know what I'm supposed to do, but that's actually not what I'm thinking about. You know, I'm watching them do this, and I'm thinking, you know, these guys have sort of targets on their head, and there's this mm-hmm. odd experience I'm having, which I'm 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 way overpowered, I'm way over equipped, I'm so much smarter bigger, wealthier, everything than these guys, right? I'm just sitting here watching them. And at, in any moment, I'm just going to get this order and they're going to be dead. And I'm just kind of sitting in this little perch in my little privileged position watching them. Now, do they deserve to die? Are they murderers? I mean, these are all separate questions for me. But just, just the feeling of that, the feeling that I'm sitting there waiting for a guy to say to me, go. And then at that moment, I'm going to kill these guys. That, that 
that that little those those moments where I'm actually just watching them go about their lives, set up these little things, you know, ready for they don't even realize I'm watching them. It's a very odd feeling, and I find it interesting. Do, and do you, you don't find any of that in a traditional chip-based war game, no, or a strategy game, no. And then she. Do you find them like is it is the procedural issue where I mean like first person shooters uh, games like that they're very, they're very experiential um, you, you do sort of you do have more of a sense I mean one like you're you're looking at things that someone sort of put there in front of you to look at and contemplate and they have these moments where you can think about broader meanings and context do you find that you're do you find that like your 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 chit based war game, your more realistic war game? Um, Let's not use the term realistic. Yeah, and it, I don't know war simulation. I have no there idea. There we go. Yeah, detailed. Um, detailed. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Do you, do you find that becomes more of a procedural ex- exercise where it discourages considering larger context? Yeah, for me personally, it it's it, they're extremely extremely stimulating, significantly more intellectually stimulating, right? I mean the. It, Middle of Honor is just a stupid game in some ways. You just it, It's a rail shooter <laughs> in a certain <laughs> way you might define that. And so that doesn't challenge me, that part of me. But so, so yeah, so sure, simulators, simulations, war games, strategy games are, are significantly more uh, stimulating to me intellectually. But there are a lot more um, receptors that we've got, right? There are, more, there are more ways of getting to a person or engaging a person than just those ways. Okay, so I just want to back up again because we all play these games to a different extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the original question is the ethics of wargaming. And to uh, sort of a something that's implied in that state in that title is the degree to which people feel comfortable playing these games and it sounds to me like julian is just like yeah it sounds great uh i this this modifier should be uh you know plus seven instead of plus four i i have no soul you can just say it i have no soul (laughs) there you go rob is uh sort of put off and michael is and and I'm I'm still trying to get to where Michael is. I'm I'm horrified. Okay. Uh, and and what that means is that it it's hard for me to reconcile the game fun experience of doing these things from a kind of top down distanced point of view and the reality underneath that, which is that just these you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of people die. Okay. So, so what you're saying is that it's, it, you're, you're, you're somehow more comfortable with a, with a, with a one-on-one killing sort of representation than with an abstract, uh, implied sort of philosophical killing representation. If I want an experiential, you know, gaming encounter. If I want that feeling of being in, in deeply invested emotionally and otherwise in the game, then I want to be able to look the enemy in the eye. And I want to be faced with, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm still waiting for a game to do this to me, that I want to be able to think hard about whether or not it's the right thing to do to kill this guy. 
And and if I and I want to be in a situation where I do make quick decisions, and then I realize later that I, those were mistakes, things that real soldiers face. So okay, but what about real commanders? Is it, is it, wouldn't commanders face face uh, decisions like that, and they're just different decisions? Sure, but I think it's just a different it's a different situation. You're still you know commanders are still in a way kind of top down looking at the battlefield, and I'm not saying that's not interesting, mm-hmm. but. Uh, from the soldier's so point of view, I'm saying that from the soldier's point of view, um, it's hard to capture that experience of an individual soldier in in battle, facing uh, extremely um, fast-moving, compli- complicated situations. Well, I mean, it's hard in some ways, but, that's that's but, kind of a holy grail of storytelling. That's like trying to explain childbirth, right? But that's also not what war games yeah. model. I mean, they're, they're right. generally not about modeling. To do. That's right. That's right. And, and I'm not sure how that's getting back to the uh, the ethics of war game. So the ethics are what, what's that? What's that? How does that relate to the ethics? Because I'm still I'm still not getting there. Well, I don't know. I think I, I think kind of the problem we're we're we're, coming, we're, we're having with the, with this topic is that. I think I think you know if you're if we're being honest about it you know not for the purposes of having a discussion about it but like straight up like are there ethical considerations with wargaming? I personally don't really feel there are there are. I think ethics become involved in what you take away from the experience and what you bring to it, and that's I, I, I for me that that's where this becomes a bit more this this issue becomes a little more important. I don't think I don't think the game that simulates the commander's perspective necessarily has an ethical standpoint but i think you know the games like that can become prisms through which people filter their experiences and understanding of the world and that's an aspect that's the aspect that always leaves me feeling just a little bit curious like i know what i see in these games but then you've got well you've got the guy running around the woods in the ss uniform and we might be playing the same games and i'm i'm curious you know I'm curious then, what are other people taking out of these? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious what people are taking out of them too. Uh, but I mean, I think I think for a, for a large group, for, for a large part of that group of people who are playing these games, I think I I know what they're taking out of it, which is that they want some some stronger connection to historical events that they like reading about or or studying or things like that. Well, okay. then. And then I think we're, we're we're coming to question that I mean you know it doesn't just you can't confine this just to war games then we're, we're really talking about military history as well I think and yeah I, I mean I, well, I I think that's part of it like if you're if you're if you're really into military history and you start mm-hmm. you know that 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 becomes your, your your interest and you start interpreting the world through the lens of military history then I, I think eventually you're going to you're going to go down the rabbit hole like you're going to ha- start to have a seriously warped understanding. doesn't this doesn't this kind of loop us back to where we started though you know when when troy said you know the reason he wants to play uh you know anybody but the nazis in a world war ii conflict is he likes feeling like the good guy i mean ultimately the only distinction there is that you're saying well it's socially acceptable to assume that the you know the good guys won this one therefore i'm going to play the good guys i mean i don't think anybody's going to disagree with you generally on world war 2 there but not all conflicts are quite that cut and dried right and i have no problem playing you know napoleon the battle of waterloo uh but he was the good guy yeah, yeah. So not a question of just the, the good, I, mean, I, I not a question of just necessarily good guys bad guys because for some reason i 
don't mind playing Stalin, even though he's like the king of all jerks. Uh, but you give me a choice between the Soviets and the Nazis, I always take the Soviets, but that's because I'm Canadian and voted for Obama. Um, so <laughs> I didn't actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm a non-citizen. I can't vote, but I would have. Um, I, I mean, I think Rob's on to something. One of the issues, if it, military history is, you know, what brings people in, I think, I think Bruce is right about that. People play these games. I play a lot of these games. I prefer historical strategy games because I am not a freak like Julian. I love the history. I'm embedded in the history. You it means a great I deal to the me. History. <laughs> Quiet you. Uh, it's it's an important it's, it's an important draw for me. I was just uh, interviewed, did an email interview with a guy who was asking me questions about histor- historical strategy gaming. So I had to think about you know why people are drawn to this. But you know, Rob's onto something. If you're if you see war games just as military exercises, mm-hmm. that distorts your view of all history. And I think this is where you get the whole fetishization thing, where war itself becomes a game and the command becomes a game. You go into war game forums. Right. You go you go into war game forums and you will see not just a lot of veterans, but a lot of people who really think that, you know, the military can solve any problem. That, you know, the best solution for America's foreign policy or for all foreign policy in general is just to go and kick some ass and the best army will solve things. And if you don't win the war fast, it's because the commander screwed something up, not because the war is unwinnable or because it's an intractable conflict or whatever. And I wonder if this is when I look at computer war games, and I think of you know uh, one thing uh, Chit and Hex and cardboard war games have better than computer war games is designer notes, where there often is context, where they do explain why certain yes. things are abstracted out or abstracted in, and this is something that's missing from a lot of strategy games and a lot of war games uh, on the computer, where there isn't any understanding of where the game pretty much are just math. Um, and I think if we see war games just purely as mental exercises, uh, it does run the risk of, you know, not not corrupting generations of youth like Dungeons of Dragons has, but <laughs> but you know, it, putting war games you know in this weird little box where it isn't quite history, uh, but it's also trying to replicate it. It's replicating tiny little boxes of history. And I wonder if what the ethical obligations of designers are, of developers are. And we, Bruce talked about the t- tiller taking out you know, the names to protect the innocent, to protect the families of these people. And that's all well and good. But if you're representing history and claiming to represent history, what are the obligations you have as a developer and designer? Uh, certainly the game must come first, but... Is there, are there some lines you can draw that you must draw, and certain things you must communicate? That well, was a it, mighty. Lo- that was a mighty long lecture, but anyway. I think that's just. I think that's just determined by your market. I mean, I think if people people buy the games for a certain and play the games for a certain reason, and if you fail to engage their sort of uh, level of verisimilitude that uh, they have, uh, that they expect some fidelity to a battle or, or situ- historical situation that they're interested in, if you don't uh, if, if you don't reach whatever level of expectation they have, then they won't enjoy your game and they won't buy it. Like if, if you're uh, uh, if your Germans uh, you know are incapable of, of conquering Poland in your you know Polish invasion game, then nobody's gonna want to get that game because clearly it doesn't have anything to do with uh, 
um, with the historical situation. On the other hand, all Battle of the Bulge games overstate the German, uh, the historical German capabilities, basically for gameplay reasons. Otherwise, nobody would want to play the game, or 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 it wouldn't be interesting a uh, uh, a game situation because the German player was always basically going to lose, and um, you know have you have to artificial sort of uh, victory conditions. So I think it, I think it's totally it's totally uh, uh, determined by the market of people who are buying the game. Well, and that and that's the kind of distortion that I find interesting and a little troubling is that you do take a battle like the Battle of the Bulge, where it's it's basically a foregone conclusion. Like this is Hitler's last gamble, and it's a bad gamble. You know, at this point, I mean, if you're a German soldier fighting at this point in the war, like your own, the only thing you'd hope for is to get through to the end. Um, this this whole thing's a huge waste of you know men and lives, um, but a lot of uh, but a lot of war games tend to focus on situations where you can you can make it all mean something. You can you can portray it as some sort of some somehow an equal contest, um, and portray it as a match of the skill of the commanders, and what I think yeah, these there's games a lot are, of that. They, they tend to they, what they tend to understate. Is I mean, I don't know. Maybe this just is my you know hippiness showing through. But like, they, they do understate the futility and tragedy of war in situations like that. Where, where the, if you portray the Battle of the Bulge as oh here's here's a clash of the titans and here's a fascinating battle. Well, it is fascinating. But what they're doing is they're they're making it a little. They're 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 presenting an artificial view of the Battle of the Bulge for gameplay purposes, true. Yes. But yes. a lot of people playing it are going to say, well, yeah, but this is also history. This is a this is historical game. Right. They're going to take that as fact. Right. Right. No, and, I, don't, I disagree. I disagree. You disagree? Completely. Okay. Because I think that, that is... No I, I, no, I don't. I think as a matter of fact that that, that was actually a thing that leads people to, to discredit the game or not discredit, that's a bad word, I retract that word, that peop- that, that, that's a, a thing that leads people to, to more closely investigate the game. And I think the people that are, are uh, likely to go buy a box that says His- Hitler's Last Gamble on it and then take an exacto knife and cut out a whole bunch of cardboard squares and put them on a map are exactly the type of people who are going to sort of measure that game against everything that they've read about the battle and decide, ha, huh, you know, they're really, the chance of, of, the, uh, of the Germans uh, getting to Antwerp is basically zero. And, uh, you know, the chance of, um, of the Germans even making a meaningful, uh, you know, meaningful um, uh, crossing of the Meuse is, is zero. And the, the game itself is not, you know, they're, they're going to actually uh, uh, sort of deconstruct the game in that sense. I think you're uh, very generous I'm, <laughs> to most war games. I, mean, I think that, you know, the really hardcore ones might. But I look, you know, that I'm, now there aren't many computer war games out there. But I wonder how many people who buy, you know, a computer war game about, you know, the in- Battle of Kursk are really, you know, that invested in learning all the detailed histories and not just seeing a bunch of tanks bang into each other. I think a lot of, I mean, people, I mean, seriously, I mean, somebody who's buying a John Tiller game of Kursk where the, where it takes you 45 minutes to do one turn and there are 240 turns. Well, no, 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 well, well, nobody buys John Tiller games. Okay. Well, but I mean, the point is, you know, people have so much invested in these. I mean, you're, I, I completely disagree with you. Like one bazillion percent. (laughs) <laughs> is that a real number? 
I believe you, that's more than more percentage I mean, I, than is possible. You don't. I, I, you, you wouldn't want to play a game like this unless you had the opportunity to alter the outcome, right? If it's a foregone conclusion that these battles had a historical dimension, so then the game must reproduce well, that. I, right? I, I actually, I actually disagree. I mean, I mean, let's go all the way down to the other end of the complexity scale and talk about Richard Borg's war games, like, you know, you know, where uh, things like uh, memoir 44 and things like that, you know, Richard Borg the, made a war game. Oh, shut up. Um, and, you know, the, the, you know, his way of dealing with that is he sets up these very simplistic. I mean, these things have like 50 squares on a board, 50 hexes on a board, very simplistic conflicts, which are clearly lopsided. But the point is to play three times. Right. And you play you, you each play a side and, you know, then have an opportunity to see who's going to actually be able to settle that. And there's scoring mechanisms. And that I think there are ways of playing those asymmetrical conflicts accurately and in an interesting way as well where you feel like you're making choices that that's true yeah yeah and and sure it's not impossible to win most of the time but it's extraordinarily unlikely and i played some large scenarios uh sort of miniatures games that are clearly set up the wrong way right where i'm destined to lose and it's just a question of whether i can make interesting choices along the way where I've, I've, maybe I haven't won, but I felt like I've substantially turned the tide more than was historically accurate, but by being smart, not by being lucky. Well, a lot of war games have that idea. Can you do better than Lee? Yes, that was, uh, the, that, was that was the marketing for pretty much every Avalon Hill game in from 1960 to 1970. <laughs> 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 so yeah, I mean, I, I agree. You know, can you, you know? Can, can you turn the tide at Gettysburg, et cetera, just like you said? But, uh, um, I mean, I just, I think that it, uh, Michael had, was onto something there about, you know, changing the outcome. Um, but I think even even changing the outcome in a sort of in a tactical sense without uh, changing the strategic outcome is what a lot of, what a lot of games do. Because, I mean, the chances that you're going to actually, uh, you know, you can still win a Stalingrad game if you, uh, you know, if you hold out for two weeks longer than historically the Sixth Army did. But in the end, I don't think, you know, if you think about what it matters, what, it, what difference it makes to the war is, is, is zero, but the game ended, so it doesn't matter. I mean, the, you're putting it in this, in yeah. this giant context. Is it, but if you're, thinking of it, if you're thinking of it as you're not going to change a loss to a win or a win to loss necessarily, but you're going to do better, for example, like you were saying, it becomes an exercise in, uh, you know, how much better can I do, or can I do a little bit better, or can I do way better? And if I do way better, I'm obviously smarter than Lee, or I'm smarter than the guy who played the game mm-hmm. with me last week. But mm-hmm. I, I sort of go back to DefCon for just a second. You know, it, the thing about that game is that it, it, everyone loses, and it's no, they don't. Well, yes, they do. Yes, they do. They do. I mean, everyone takes heavy, heavy losses. And so, really, it's a question of how. I get back to this this idea of the, there being a point of view that there's there's an experience that you have playing that game that uh, suggests that even if you do your very best, there's no way of really winning in this situation. Uh, I, I got I gotta say I, I I don't agree. I mean, if if I when I if if I were to ever beat Tom Chick at DefCon, then I would win, guaranteed. I, it would be a win. And, How do you and, define win? 
I, Tom I, loses. Playing against Tom, you would happily even bring I know down the, the answer world. to that question. Do, do better. <laughs> do better than your opponent, right? A one way of I, defining winning is I, I do <laughs> my opponent. I, I think part of the point of DefCon is to redefine what winning means. The part of what DefCon's yes. about is to say yeah. this: you think this is winning because you defeat your opponent. Okay, so I suppose you did, but ultimately, it seems to me that DefCon is suggesting that this is a no-win situation. That if we go down this road. This game is trying to demonstrate to us what that looks like, and what that looks like is is awful. No, it looks Amen. actually great. It's it's actually oh. looks it looks really it looks really well, nice, and it has Brian Eno. And I'm I'm, I'm well, really I mean here's where it comes comes. I mean I'm I'm kind of with Bruce on this. I mean I love the authorial and Tempion Defcon. I know what it's I know what it's trying to say, but once you've played it enough times and you know and you've absorbed that, you know, seeing New York City getting nuked the tenth time doesn't you know. It just becomes sure, a, and, you, and you, oh, anything's going time. to lose impact. Anything's yeah, going can, to lose impact. Can, more experience. You can watch full, me- you can watch full metal jacket a hundred yeah. times, and you, you can laugh at every part you're not supposed to laugh at too. But yeah. I, don't, I, I just, I completely, I completely disagree that that uh, that uh, DefCon has the same impact as a as a as a as a really good film. Well, no, I mean, yeah, nobody was arguing that. Well, it's I thought that's well, it. I, I could. Right here. I yeah. could. Yeah. Julian's we're gonna we're gonna get that right now. Apparently, here we go. Throw it down. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> no, I just I think that games have a way of making you think because they actually give you intent, right? They give you a they let you make a choice, and so I I actually think that what choice am I games, making in not... DefCon? Blowing up Tom Chick. That's the choice I'm making. I'm not trying to be all emo here. I have I have plotted the demise of many many people in DefCon. I have played. I, I probably played close to a hundred hours of that game. I loved okay. that game, um, and it's always you know from a from a game perspective, it's one of the great backstabbing games of all time. Yeah, definitely, right? definitely. But from a but but the first three or four times I played that game, I, I will tell you that I felt emotionally like, holy shit, why am I playing this game? Right? I mean, yeah, I actually had moments that. of that. Well, then okay, but, okay, okay, well, but Julian, here's the question then for you: if that game affected your emotions and it touched you and made you question you know why am i doing this to all these people but you kept playing the damn thing right because they made too good a game right Right. so i mean what does that say about the ethical message the political message the statement if you know what it comes down to that's a statement about me not as much about the game well i would think well that's a bit of both isn't it are you saying you're some moral reject? I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I, think, I don't I think, think a game should necessarily have to... Yeah, I mean, a game shouldn't have to drive you away, right? And a, a, the success right. of a game shouldn't be, oh my god, I never want to play this again. That Therefore, it's a good game. It, well, no, but, but, if, that, but if, if, if the statement is supposed to be effective and he says it touched his heart and touched his soul and made him never want to fire a nuclear weapon in anger again... Um, Sounds very then, skeptical, doesn't he, Julian? <laughs> then I wonder. I mean, I, I absolutely... Julian's never lied to me as far as I know. Uh, so I, I actually believe him. So the question is, you know, if that meaning and that ethical statement or moral statement was so strong, and you, you said yourself, you questioned why you were playing it, but you did keep playing it. Yes. And that's that's the question I'm trying to, to, to get at. I mean, here's a game that raised ethical questions, but, you know, in the end, it's just another strategy game. Yeah, yes. I've I got to come to Julian's defense on this, much as I hate to. But, uh, yeah, but I, but I mean, I guess the, the point is that, you know, if the like like you said, if the game were so if the game disgusted you to the point where you didn't want to play it anymore, then that would be pointless. Just like, you know, 
I don't know what Pasolini was thinking when he made Solo, but I don't really like to watch that movie. So the point is that once it's once a, a movie becomes so distasteful, I can't watch it anymore. Then the, then the point of the movie is lost. So then the same way the point of the game is lost. So you know, it, uh, you can watch disturbing movies and still in, you know enjoy the movie. I right. think that you can you can uh, watch um, uh, you can uh, play you know whatever disturbing games. I don't think Defcon falls in any way into the disturbing game category at all but i mean that's just my that's my personal you, opinion. let let me be clear that this means that you have no soul so we've we established well, both sides of this argument I, I think but i i think we're being unfair to a game like defcon in saying that well it's got it's got to have this one meaning you take away from it and i i think the great thing about any sort of creative work a good one at least is you can take away many meanings i can be repelled by defcon and i am um I can also take a really dark, unholy satisfaction in it. Not just the thrill of beating Tom Chick, although I've never known that thrill. Um, Few of but, us have. But I can, I can take the satisfaction of you know, watching that one nuke that the other guy just isn't in a position to block you know, go arcing across the globe uh-huh. to wipe out like 25 million people in Moscow. And there's nothing you can do about it. And you hit it and you just see... 25 million people erased because, you know, you timed that perfectly. You know, you, uh-huh. you, are, you are the nuke launcher king. And, that is, yes, that's repulsive. Good God. Well, I'm also <laughs> absolutely thrilled. And I, 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 don't think, I don't think those have to be exclusive. And I think one of the things that games like this can do is they can open up certain mindsets. You know, well, that, don't you think your your exposure to things that well-made things your your exposure to them mm-hmm. over time changes your point of view about them, and that you you study them differently. You know that I I teach Vertigo, for example, uh, mm-hmm. pretty much every year in a film class that I teach, and you know your initial response to that film it functions in a certain way, and there's all this you know weird sexual stuff going on underneath the film. But if you when you show it many times, you, your your vision shifts, right? You start to appreciate the filmmaking. You start to appreciate just the Cinema, cinema, cinematography and the choices that he makes in terms of visual motifs. He didn't notice it the first and second time, but you know your your vision shifts to other things that you appreciate once the initial exposure to the thing and the surprises that it has for you can't be reproduced. And that's a, another way of appreciating art. You you know you right. you can see a thing over and over, and you just have a, a different set of responses to it. I agree with you completely. Yeah, and a strategy game that puts the message first, ends up being balance of power. And we all know how bad balance of power is. Right, Bruce? Yeah. Oh, yes. We all know that. But Gospel. One thing I did want to bring up, though, something that, if we're going to talk about the ethics of war game, I, one thing that I'm actually sort of proud of war games for doing, um, you know, I think they do illuminate topics and points of view that are too easily forgotten. They're, they uh, Things that people often just aren't likely to think about until you've actually sort of looked at a situation from, say, a theater commander's point of view. Such as? Um, well, God, I mean, just because it's been on my mind so much, I mean, um, that World War One scenario we talked about last week, or whenever it was, um, you know, the, in the Operation Art of War, where you're, where, you're trying, where you're basically facing the task of driving through Belgium and northern France and ending the war before the end of August... 1914. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you, you play, you play scenarios like that and you start to, you start to get into 
at least something like the mindset of a commander, where, where it all becomes a series of, of problems, logistical problems, tactical problems, um, you know, issues of timing. You get, you get really involved in just the minutia of warfighting. And I, I think there's value in coming to grips with these, with these topics. Because yeah, you, you, go on. Go ahead. Keep, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep continuing. Well, no, because because I, I don't. I think you know as much, just as much as it's dangerous. There's there's a danger of fetishism when you're talking about military history. There's also a danger of ignorance and indi- or indifference or you know something when when you don't pay attention to these things when you when you don't occasionally at least put yourself in those shoes. It becomes a, a question of empathy. But I, th- but I, I think it's, I think it's also very dangerous to take war games and draw conclusions like, you know, if uh, Guderian had stacked, you know, four more combat factors in Smolensk, you know, on turn twelve, then you know the world would be, you know, ruled by Nazi Germany. I think that, uh, you know, the the whole uh, the whole system that people create for these war games is just, you know, it's basically one person's or one small group of people's. Uh, interpretation and uh, selective uh, utilization of, you know, facts and data. And just because uh, somebody designed a really good game about the Battle of Britain that shows that if, if uh, you know, Goering had consistently, you know, repeatedly attacked, uh, you know, British airfields, you know, over and over and over, uh, that the you know that the the Luftwaffe would have would have won the Battle of Britain. I think it's very dangerous to draw those conclusions simply from the from the point of war games because uh, just like any just like you can't do scientific experiments you know on the computer because all you can all you can deal with is is all the variables that you know. Um, I think that uh, you know trying to draw too many conclusions from a game where you are only dealing with uh, you know previously identified variables. Um, I just, I just don't, there's always, you know, there's always something, you know, what, what other factors were there that weren't identified that would have come up if you had tried to end the, you know, end World War One in August. Right. But what, I mean, but what you're describing there is to an extent, the problem of any sort of work of history. And I'm not saying that war games necessarily are right. historical works, but that's kind that's what you're bringing up here is people, any historian, for instance, will bring to you a certain perspective, a certain framework for taking this problem. And I think, but you can you know, take it I'm or sure leave it. Sh- right. But in and, games, and, you're changing things. You're playing the game and then saying, oh, you know, you, because you, and a game will allow you to test your theory, right? Well, what if I just stacked all my panzers in this one X? But, right? but, you're, but you're working, but at least you're working through that exercise that was set up. But I, I think, you know, for, for both you and I, Bruce, I mean, like, war games are in dialogue with our broader intellectual diet, right? Like, the, 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 the war game about the Battle of the Bulge isn't isn't the only contact we have with the Battle of the Bulge. We've read a lot of things about it. And probably too read... many things about it. And I think that's something I should actually think about. Why are we so interested in the freaking Battle of the Bulge? I mean, how many books have I read about the Battle of the Bulge? And I, I have far more knowledge of the Battle of the Bulge that will ever be useful or probably interesting to anyone. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a topic for some other podcast where we can just basically make fun of it. Or, or, or for you in therapy. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna wrap. <laughs> I'm gonna wrap this up uh, now with a reminder and a thank you. This is the last uh, podcast of Pledge Month, October. Uh, donations have come in fast and strong. I finally authorized the account and will transfer the money to my Cayman Islands uh, checking account, uh, five hundred dollars at a time, because PayPal limits you to five hundred dollar 
donation five hundred dollar withdrawals per month, which I did wow. not know. So that means yes, we have gotten more than five hundred dollars. Uh, so I want to thank everyone who has d- donated. Um, and remind you that if you do want to contribute to the podcast and to Flash of Steel, you'll notice there have been – I've tried to even do updates when I was in Canada uh, last week. There have been some more guest blogs have come in. I'll be getting those up and uh, going to certainly be blogging more as I have more to reflect on uh, this year. And, of course, the podcast, this money, despite – all of the notes saying I should buy a keg of beer. This money is not going for a lot of beer, but I want to thank Julian and Rob for making everybody think I'm an alcoholic. This uh, <laughs> money goes to pay for server costs, to occasionally pick up the tab for meetups, for games for when we don't have enough review copies, and also to help maintain me in the lifestyle to which I've become accustomed, which is uh, heat and water. Uh, more or less. Uh, That's code for hookers and blow, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, those of you who have donated, thank you very much. Uh, those of you who haven't, once again, no pressure. This will not be a subscription. There's no no forcing. The donate button will stay on the right sidebar at flashofsteel.com, uh, but you will not hear any more words about it on the podcast until next October. Uh, so thanks to everyone. Also a reminder that November 20th, I will be having the second uh, regional meetup for where I live in the Washington, D.C. area. We had so much fun last time. I'm going to do it once a season. So the fall meetup will be on November 20. Uh, stay tuned uh, to the blog for details on location and time and hope to see you all there. Next week, we don't have a topic yet, uh, but certainly lots of things to talk about. There's a great new game coming up from Shrapnel I'd love to spend some time on. And maybe it's something I can actually spend some, if I can't get review builds for Julian and Rob, it is certainly something that I do want to talk about because of uh, the board games and strategy games and all of that. Might not be a good not big enough for a full show, but I really like it. Bruce has played it, and I think he likes it too. Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, it's fun. It, it, it's fun. Uh, it is called Bronze, and it comes out in early November uh, from Shrapnel. And uh, I have a review of it coming out uh, sometime next month, whenever they publish it. And hopefully we can talk about it here, because I do want to give it some press. I want to thank Michael for joining us. Michael, you do a great show, and we loved having you and having your perspective. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And, and people, send, <laughs> send the money. Send the money. Yeah. <laughs> you, I, I do a show. I don't do it nearly as regularly, and I don't do it nearly as, as complex shows that you guys do with multiple guests, all kinds of stuff going on at once. It's a tremendous amount of work, people. Let me tell you, it's a lot of work to do a podcast. So, yeah, send your money to Troy. <laughs> I want to thank Mike. Thank Michael for also listening to the show. He's not just a guest. He's an audience member. <laughs> uh, and uh, Bruce, th- welcome back. Yeah, it's uh, – hey, look, if uh, – if I were getting more than about two hours of sleep every uh, every other night, I would uh, be glad to be on more often. Plus, if I actually were playing any games anymore, um, if you can do something about that, that would be great. I would love to have you play more games. I'll talk to your supervisor. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Julian, Rob, always a pleasure. Thank you. No problem. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Insert rap Good night. music here. <laughs>